I'm Dylan Stafford, and welcome to Drive Time, UCLA Anderson's podcast about some of the most interesting and ambitious people in our community. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Welcome to Drive Time. My name is Dylan Stafford. I'm an assistant dean here at UCLA Anderson. It is my pleasure to get to introduce you to Brent Presentine, a graduate of our program here at UCLA Anderson from the class of 2015. Brent, welcome. Thank you, Dylan. It's good to be here. Thanks. Thanks for coming in person. Um, This is going to be fun. I really think your story, if you pay attention, I hope that you can manage your personal finances a little bit better 30 minutes from now after you get to know (laughs) Brent and his story. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk about UCLA, Anderson, career results, favorite classes, peaks and valleys, all that good stuff. But this is a man who gets paid to tell people what to do with their money and their finances and how to set themselves and their family up for success. So I hope you whis- listen all the way to the very end. So Brent, um, again, thanks for being here. Brent's role is um, he is a partner advisor at Advice Period, and we're going to make you wait to learn exactly what that is and kind of start with getting people the story that got you to where you are now because sure. you've built a great life and it's working. Um, so you know, let's start with. You know, where'd you grow up? Where Where are you from? Tell us kind of. I'm a cheesehead. A cheesehead. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. And we were joking earlier. I went to a private Catholic college prep high school that is no further from where we sit here in the new Marion Anderson Hall to Ackerman Union. My high school, our training runs would run through University of Wisconsin's campus. My friends, their fathers and mothers were professors or football coaches or what have you. So it was really, really close to home which is probably why I went so far away from home for school. So, so tell people, so you, you grew up in Wisconsin, you know, middle America, everybody knows each other. Sure. The big excitement of, of Wisconsin's across the street. So where, where did you go and why'd you go there? Yeah. So for undergrad, my undergrad days were at Barrett college at Arizona state university. Um, I got a marketing degree. Uh, they were just ranked number 11 for that program in us news and world report. Wisconsin was nine. So I think the trade-off wasn't, too bad, according to what my parents might think. But one of the reasons why I went to Arizona State was just the cost, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, there's going to be some recurring themes you'll see during this conversation. Uh, my mother was a, an elementary school uh, teacher for 35 years. Uh, she's since retired. My father was uh, in the wine and spirits industry. Um, he ran uh, regional and state level sales divisions for um, some big time, at the time, some big distilleries. And eventually he was also on the wholesaling side. I have two younger siblings. Um, my brother is he's two years younger than I am and my sister is seven years younger than I am. So when it came time to evaluate colleges, I was looking at things in the costs. Uh, I didn't want to go to Wisconsin for reasons I already mm-hmm. said before, but when you looked at where I could go, um, out-of-state tuition was prohibitively expensive at most universities. Mm-hmm. I did quite well on my boards, uh, SATs, PSATs, ACTs, et cetera. Arizona State was, you know, in, in the infant stages of its honors program. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barrett had been around for me before five years prior to that. They offered to subsidize my tuition to make it equivalent to in-state. Nice. So, you know, when I went through the process of applying to schools, um, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Boston College, all schools that I got into, I handed my dad the acceptance letters. And then I had the I had a, an ace in the hole. Uh, my dad played baseball at Arizona State for two years during the 70s. Oh, I did. Okay. So it, was, it wasn't it was really easy for him to refute, you know, look, it, the reputation of the school precedes itself. It's certainly a place where people could have a good time. Um, I always like to tell people that it taught me to balance my priorities. 
Uh, I can have a good time and still get, you know, almost straight A's, which, which I did. So uh, that's why I ended up at Arizona State. Um, I had a great time there. I can say zero bad things about the program. Nice. Nice. Um, so there was a little, you know, even, even, you know, oldest of three, seven years ahead of my sister, my parents, you know, they're, they're on board. Our family believes in education and you could even, you were even aware of kind of the family balance sheet at a distance. And so that was a sort of a smart cost of time and money. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I looked at with my parents is that they made a promise to me that if I did well in high school, they were going to pay for my education. Hmm. They made that promise, you know, in good faith, I suppose. Um, they didn't really have a plan to pay for it. Okay. They were going to make it work. Yeah. And so at the time, the, the wine and spirits industry was going through a lot of consolidations. Uh, my dad's role was changing. Actually, the family was getting moved to Florida for a relocation for his job. Okay. Lots of, you know, turning wheels in terms of what was going to happen. Uh, a lot of uncertainty. So I figured, you know, even at 18 years old, if I could add some certainty to the process, that would help things. Um, you know, would I have had a good time at Wisconsin? I'm sure I would have. My brother and sister both are graduates of UW-Madison and they're proud to rub it in my face when the rankings are, are higher than the ASUs. But I, I, still, Thanks, get, I still get, well, Thanks, I still get the Lord UCLA Anderson over, over their heads. There you so go. Hey, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, the, look at the, where ASU, you know, led me to um, ENJ Gallo. So I, I don't know if you saw that on my LinkedIn page, but- Oh yeah, um, I did. Yeah, you had some really interesting jobs in those first years. I, I was- Adrift, I think, is is a good good word to put. We're it. all adrift when um, we graduate undergrad. It's one of those kind of fake it till you make it. You know, pretend that you know what you're doing and hope that eventually that catches up, right? Mm-hmm. And I forget the concept there, but that's uh, that's where I was. Um, but Ian J. Gallo was a really great place to work, and for, for the fact that they taught you to plan your work and to work your plan. So again, planning is a consistent theme through my lifetime up to where I am now. Uh, but they had really high standards um, for their employees mm-hmm. to the point where um, Ernest Gallo, when he visited a store that was under your watch, would get down on his hands and knees with a white glove and rub the bottle and see if you've been there in the last two weeks to dust the bottles that were under your purview. So for real, for real, like at, even at the time I worked there, he was a 90 plus year old man. He since oh passed, but this is th- these are things you'd worry about. You get a call, you get a call from your district manager and say, hey, you know. That route down in Mission Viejo, Ernest is going to be there. You need to get there and make sure everything is ship shape. And that could have been on a Sunday morning and you're expected to do it. So um, that job, I kind of gave up on that a little early than maybe I should have. And mm-hmm. I know they come through here and recruit some of our, uh, some of our grants. Anderson. Yeah. So, so look, at I during the time I was working there, um, the food workers in California were on strike for 14 months made my job a little bit more difficult because I was crossing picket lines. And so mm. there was some unpleasant- Or the perception was- you know, the perception that I was yeah. crossing picket lines and I just really wanted to do my job. I mean, I was 23. I wanted to pay rent and eat. But I, you know, so eventually I went back to Wisconsin and I landed at Trek Bicycle. So when you talk about interesting jobs, I mean, there was probably no more interesting job than Trek just from a standpoint of the attitude people have. It's a very fun company. It's outdoorsy. People know it for the bikes, you know, the mountain, the mountain bike guys. You know, they had a beer fridge, right? This was probably way before tech companies were throwing out the beer fridge concept. These guys were like, hey, it's Friday. Let's have a beer and let's go ride on our, our fat tire bikes, right? So that, nice. that was good. Um, the most stressful thing working at Trek, though, was that, I don't know if you, you can't tell from me sitting here, but I'm about the exact same measurements as Lance Armstrong, who was one of their big endorsers. He was, at the time I was working there, he was going at number five out of seven consecutive Tour de France uh, championships. 
and they were going to give him a new bike, right? So this carbon fiber bike that I think costs more than every car I've ever owned up until the current car I own. Wow. Probably $35,000 bike. Bike. Wow. Comes off the, the assembly line, roll into our marketing department. I'm like, well, does it, does it work? I'm like, what do you mean? What is it? Does it work? Right. That's laughing that question off, but literally they asked me to jump on this bike to test drive it because it was going to go on a plane to Paris so that Lance could drive it and ride it down the Champs Elysees while he was sipping his champagne after he won title number five. It was the most panicked I've ever been on a bicycle. And that's someone who fell all the time when they were six and learned how to ride. Right. So that's it. it a lot of great experiences. Um, ultimately didn't pan out in the long run. Um, but you know, I move forward and you can, we can ask about where I ended up, right? That's yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get to where you end up because you got one more. So sure, I, what do you have? What's the other, what's the other job? Gallo is cool. You know, spirits kind sure. of following yeah. in the footsteps of your father. Uh, Trek is just cool. Yeah. It's an iconic yeah. brand. And obviously you had that sort of overlap with Mr. Armstrong. Um, but you were also, you, you spent time, I think right before you graduated ASU with the Phoenix Suns. Yeah. The one you, the, like the coolest college job ever. It really was right. I mean, 41 home games without paying for a season ticket. So if you can get a job like that, I highly recommend it. Um, we were, it was kind of my first foray into field research. We were tasked with going out into the stadium bowl and trying to get season ticket holders to talk to us and talk about the whys behind renewals, whys behind, you know, adding more seats. What they wanted to see is the, is the team, the arena, everything evolved, right? Mm -hmm. Look, downtown Phoenix wasn't a great place to be at that time. It's since changed. It's, it's night and day from when I was there. So it was a little bit of a, you know, iffy job, mm -hmm. despite the allure, despite the glamour, right? You're like, I have to park where? I have to walk where after games? So all that aside, the best experience I had there as a kid who grew up, you know, with WGN, you know, Superstation pumping into Wisconsin via Chicago um, and the Jordan era Bulls were right around my timeline. Michael Jordan had come out of retirement to play for the Washington Wizards. The one game he played in Phoenix, he had a game winner at the buzzer and I got to see it for free. So that, that was that, that's a great job. So if you if you enjoy athletics, there are lots of cool jobs in athletics. Uh, I learned a lot, a, a lot about jobs in athletics. We can get to that later, too, um, right here at UCLA. Yeah, and we will, and because you you actually took um, you know Professor Morad's business of sports class, and and you've got some, and and you're gonna we're gonna learn about Peter Guber and and Dean Olian in right. the leadership class. So, okay, excellent. So three cool jobs: one during school, two kind of the early jobs, early twenties. So somewhere along the way, you're thinking, oh, MBA, right? How how did you know it was time for an MBA? What was what was telling you that? Oh, I think maybe I need a grad degree also. Okay. Well, in between the stint at Trek, and when that moment happened. Um, I met the woman who's now my wife. I was so in love with her, I chased her clear across the country. She nice. got a job in Washington, D.C., and I moved there with her. Um, at the time, it was early 2008. Uh, I was working for a labor union headquarters on a campaign related to what would become the Affordable Care Act. Really? So I knew that that job had a, a shot clock, if you will, mm -hmm. right? Whether if the bill passes or the bill fails, once that was there in Congress, I was done, right? So I could kind of plan ahead. And, you know, so I kept my pulse, uh, you know, the pulse of the job market and looking around and looking around as the summer dragged on, things were different, right? It, things, things that used to be, you know, jobs were prevalent, jobs were exciting. You weren't getting callbacks if you were looking for a different job or you weren't getting the networking meeting because somebody was a little panicked about what was happening. And it really didn't hit me how 
deep the crisis was until September of that year. Mm -hmm. My wife and I were going down to Miami for a long weekend. And while we were sitting at Reagan National Airport waiting for our flight, the you know, what the pre, is it the TSA? I don't know if it was the TSA anymore at that point, but somebody comes over the loudspeaker and says, there's a ground stop on all flights. We're letting a couple planes land and we'll resume normal coverage after that. And so we're like, who is who is this? You know, the president doesn't fly in here. He flies in Andrews Air Force Base. So who's important enough to do this? As we watched, we watched the Obama campaign plane land and the McCain campaign plane land. And if you'll recall over that weekend, I think it was the, the third presidential debate mm -hmm. and they had come back in to address some of the financial the precursors of the financial crisis, like the Bear Stearns collapse and mm -hmm. Lehman Brothers and things were, things were really, really crazy. And so I'm looking at this and saying, okay, this is going to be troublesome. Um, so I think if I really want to broaden my horizons, broad, you know, give myself the, the biggest runway for a potential career, maybe the GMAT's a good idea, right? So an MBA was something that, I think was always on my mind a little bit because of the consolidation that my dad's industry went through, mm -hmm. right? He was, you know, a very successful person, but early fifties, mid fifties consolidation leaves people scrambling for things. And I really didn't want that. I wanted mm -hmm. some career insurance. Uh, I wanted more opportunities and, you know, the financial crisis was upon us. So that, I think I probably wasn't alone in that decision, um, but maybe my motivations were a little different than some of the other people's. Yeah. So, now I get to sort of start to join the story because okay. now you you, you're in, so it's Wisconsin to to Arizona, around to yeah, DC. Do, do you have a map graphic? Yeah, yeah. We, we're gonna, <laughs> here on the weather chart, we can we follow Brent's path. Yeah. Um, so so how did UCLA get into your radar? Yeah, well, UCLA is always was always in my radar. I wouldn't say always, but if you go back to when I was 13 years old, living in Madison, proximity to the University of Wisconsin, all of my ties to the University of Wisconsin. University of Wisconsin played in three Rose Bowls between the time I was 13 and by the time I was going to college. Mm -hmm. uh, the first of which, you know, was 1994. We didn't really have a whole lot here, but it was my first exposure to UCLA in general. Uh, the next time was much more uh, relevant to the discussion. Uh, we were, I think it was probably 18. I was probably still making the decision about where I was going to go to school. And we, we came up to campus because one of our friends whose father was a coach at Wisconsin, his friend was the director of football operations here at UCLA. So he got us tickets to a game at Pauley during the Lavin era. Um, great seats. Um, so much so that we were about 10 feet away from Coach Wooden. So UCLA has always been there. We really loved the campus that day. You know, we'd always known about how great the basketball teams were, right? My brother and I are, are really big sports geeks. I think our whole family is, you know, my dad was a basketball official aside from his day job. He mm -hmm. also officiated basketball at the division one level in the big 10. So we were like, should we go talk to him? We were, we were really nervous, right? I mean, he, he was, he was older. Cause he, he would be retired. At he was retired yeah, yeah. and he was much older and not that he was infirm, but he was definitely, you know, not as hale and hearty as he might've been otherwise. Yeah. And we're like, okay, well, should we bug him? Should we not bug him? What are we going to do? And we're like, my brother is obviously, I think a little bit more outgoing than I am even surprisingly. So, um, he goes, if we don't do it now, we might not ever get to do it. Let's go. Right. So okay. he, he goes, right. He's you? probably 13 or 14 at the time. I, I can't, I'm going to mess up on the ages, but he's like, Hey, coach Wooden, you know, my name is Bryce. I'm, I'm glad to meet you. Here's my brother. And we're just sitting there and, you know, the shot kind of wore off and we got to talk to him for four or five minutes during a television timeout. And it was, it was just a really cool experience. Right. Wow. So 
So UCLA is on the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we move forward here. It's like, why the MBA? And I'm like, well, I've always had an inkling that I wanted to be in finance. Mm-hmm. So you look at, you know, the schools, you know, the name schools you apply to, your alma mater is being one of them, Booth. Um, you look at Wharton, but UCLA, best finance program on the West Coast, it's got to be in the mix for me, mm-hmm. right? So when I took the GMAT, I did well, I set scores out. Fortunately enough for me, I, I had moved on from the labor union headquarters to another job working for a defense industrial-based lobbying group. Um, I thought it was okay. I didn't really think I needed to apply. I just, it was kind of there in the back burner. If I need it, I'll use it. My wife came home one day after another night of being on the Beltway in DC and she was you know, inconsolable. She's crying. Mm. She's like, I hate it here. You know, everybody talks politics all the time. I want to go back to Chicago. All my friends are there. All my family's there. You need to find a way to get us back to Chicago. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Wow. Sure. You know, <laughs> what does that mean? Right? Okay. So <laughs> I'll uh, I'm like, okay, well, I got to better get, better get the applications to the booth and the catalog and all these other places, you know, going. Lo and behold, a friend of a friend um, introduced me to a company called Calamos. Uh, Calamos uh, was an investment management, asset management firm. Convertible bonds were their specialty. And he needed somebody to serve as an inside salesperson at that company. Pay was good. Hours were good. Wife would be happy. And it was something that I wanted to learn about. So mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, let's dive into two feet. And okay. lo and behold, we're back in Chicago. I liked the job. I liked the people. I liked everything about it. I was doing well. I got the opportunity to go for a couple promotions. The first one would have sent us back to the Northeast. But my wife wasn't going to like that. <laughs> Nope. We knew that there was one that was going to be California-based coming up, whether it was going to be based in San Diego or LA or who knows. The timing of it was such that my wife and I were spending our first anniversary here in LA, and we were going to drive the coast back up to Sonoma where we got married. So oh. we were married in a vineyard in Sonoma. So the E and J Gala, like my life is all these you know threads that interweave and tell a nice story, I suppose. But we're here, right down the street, we're at the W. Here in Westwood. Uh, we did. And, we're, oh, and, nice. we're, and we told the front desk, hey, we're here on our anniversary. So they upgraded us. We have this last ah, corner suite. Very good. And it's our, in our last morning here before we get on you know, PCH, we're going to make the drive. And the LA Times is the paper outside the door. I'm like, okay, let's go. Flip it to the business section. And on Sundays, they used to run an interview. I don't know if they still do because I don't get the Times anymore. I'm sad to say the newspapers, the digital age, what have you. But at that morning... In September of 2011, the business feature was an interview with Dean Olean. Oh. So Judy Olean's on there in front of the reddish-orange bricks that we all know so and love so well. They're all around right? us. Right? And, and she's she's there to talk about UCLA Anderson and her vision for it and all the programs and opportunities and what a UCLA MBA can mean for people's futures. Oh. And so I'm like, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had sent my scores here. Right? It was just kind of on the back burner. I had a good job. I'm like, you know, if we ever got to LA, maybe it's something that we'll do. Who knows? So I actually clipped the article. I, I think I still have it in my office someplace nice. at our place with my, you know, my application letter, all these other things. So that's September 2011. Uh, I interviewed for the job. I get the job. They move us out here early 2012. So maybe th- less than four months from me seeing that article to moving here. And our place wasn't ready we weren't ready to move in. It was just, we moved here January 1st, but we weren't going to take occupancy till like the 10th or somewhere down there. Okay. So we were at a hotel in Santa Monica waiting for our place to be ready. And 
I'm putzing around on my computer and like, I don't know, Thursday morning, I get this email. And it's from you. It's from Dylan. And this is not, this is not a plant here. This is true, honest to God's truth that the email says, hey, Brent, you know, happy new year. We noticed that you sent your scores to UCLA Anderson a long time ago. Your GMAT scores are about to expire. Maybe this program, FEMBA, is for you. Nice. I'm like, I'm like FEMBA, I'm like, what does that mean? Like, yeah, no one knows what. Yeah, is. I mean, at the time, I'm like part-time MBAs. Okay, that, that's 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 something I'm familiar with. And the the email contains an invitation, and the invitation is to attend a Saturday morning session, which was two days from when I'm opening the email. Nice. And okay. I'm like, well, the forecast is for rain. I think <laughs> I can send my wife to the spa for a couple hours, and I'll go over to Westwood and see what this guy Dylan has to say. Wow. And so, lo and behold, I'm enrolled in the class of 2015, less than you know, nine months later. Uh, so there we go. So I, I don't know if that's making me too feel, long winding enough for you. Making me feel old. That's but your marketing was very effective. If you're talking about like delivering what people want, want when they want it, and when they're actually ready to act on it. I mean, kudos well, to, to dude, you. That, that you, would and your, you and your team are-, are Raymond, Raymond Murata gets all the credit. Go. Yeah, that's, oh my God. We've been here a long time, Raymond. And, <laughs> and the rest <laughs> of our team. Okay, so wow, that's fortuitous and good for us. Sure. Um, so, so let's just, so you're, you're, you know, this is a, this is a working professional opportunity. Yeah. You got to juggle life um, with school, with family. I had to ask permission of my bosses. You know, I'm, I'm a new, I'm a relatively new hire, right? If you think about where I am in life, I'm somebody who came off an inside sales desk to a client facing role in the field. I'm within, you know, a few months of starting that role and then yet I'm asking to enroll hey, in a part-time MBA program. Can I take 20 hours a week? I mean, to... they looked at me like I was crazy, but I think a lot of people have always looked at me like I'm crazy. So I was used to it by then, right? I mean, okay, good. I think I'm okay, okay good. That's that. a good way to frame it. Yeah, frame I mean, me, that's that's really what it was. So then I think that was right around time. And Femma Palooza, you guys throw Femma Palooza. And I met some kids at Femma Palooza that I'm still friends with today, you know, eight years later, like Really good friends. Oh my god! And that was 2012. Yeah, that was, was the that very was first Femma Palooza, right? which is we, we which has evolved. It. And it's if you haven't done a Palooza, do a Palooza. You know, from from that day to now, Dylan, you've done a really great job. Ah, so thank I, you. I really appreciate that. So yeah, so it's all this life is happening today. Right? Yeah. So we're we're here and we're like, okay, um, yeah, it's September. I'm ready to do this. Let's do this course. Go. You know, if you get in the core and you're doing these things, and it was a real struggle for me. To be honest with you, when I mm-hmm. first started, mm-hmm. um, balancing work, balancing life, you know, I'm not that I'm only a year and a half into my marriage, less than a year into my job and I'm starting school. I'm a type A person. You know, you go back to the Gallo story and how they're high standards. I was I was drawn to the high standards. I have high standards. So it was really tough for me to kind of forgive myself and allow myself to understand that opportunity costs are there and maybe there's going to be some areas where I can't give everything all the time. No, there are not enough hours in the day. No, it was a really, it was a really, it it was actually a really challenging point in my life. I'm like, did I make the right decision? I mean, what's this going to look like? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to be terrible at school? Like what's going to happen? And so in the depths of that introspection, my wife comes home from the doctor and she tells me I'm pregnant. So, because this is how life goes. So listen, my boss at Calamos, the guy who hired me, Brian Ware, he always kept Ronald Reagan's It Can Be Done poster on his desk. Mm. And let me tell you, it can be done. Mm. Okay. All that craziness, all of it, it can be done. So if you're at a point where you're thinking about, you know, is Fembra right for me? 
you know, is an MBA right for me? Can I do it with the family? Can I do it? It can be done. You just have to learn how to make some trade-offs in your life and learn to accept that you're not going to be all things to all people. It's a tough thing to do. It took me probably all three years of time to figure that out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I, I think first off, my wife is a saint. <laughs> So she deserves all Let's the give credit where yeah, credit she, is due. She, she gets all the credit in the world for allowing me to take all of those risks mm -hmm. and to do it at a time where we're trying to bring a, a new life into the world, right? Mm -hmm. and, and God bless her. I love you, darling. So thank you. Um, where where we pick up from that, you know. Look and at, your son was born like. He was born. In the middle of year, right start of year two. Year two. Uh, you know, I think we record our system here, if you didn't know that. Um, late September is when school starts and he was either born the first Saturday morning of year two or the Saturday morning right before the start of year two. So yeah. if you ask me about the first quarter of year two, I don't remember anything that happened. So yeah, forgive me if I get dates or names or places wrong, but that's strategy and operations with the courses. I'm sure well, you did yeah, well, but, well, yes, sir. Uh, Professor Carl, I think he and I had a few arguments about my ability to spend time in his class versus my ability to change diapers. So that. Talk about bottlenecks and managing the bottleneck. There you go. We don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but look, at we, we went from really struggling with the onset of, of school work, with work-life balance to adding another piece to that puzzle. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just kind of leaning into all the struggle really helped. And the good news about what I was doing at the time was I was able to set my own schedule. So I wasn't locked into, you know, Tuesdays and Thursday nights or to Saturdays. I was able to kind of spread my wings and say, what? of the whole curriculum fits because I was beyond the core classes, right? It wasn't, okay. I wasn't limited to just those two. Here's my section. Here's where I go. I could take the whole curriculum if it would have me, right? If you're smart about allocating your points. Which, yeah. For those of you yeah, who don't sorry, know. You'll, you'll get to learn that later but, on. But super quick, the second half of the curriculum is customized. The first half is basically lockstep. And the second half, your electives, right. you've got a lot of flexibility. Yeah. And it's a big selling point here versus some of the other part-time programs I investigated was that I got to mix and mingle with full-time cohort. So my network is even broader than maybe some of my mm. colleagues in FEMBA. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Well, um, we've talked about some of the valleys of UCLA, of yeah. which, you know, it's it's two or three years of your life and you have a job if you do the FEMBA program. Um, we have a great full-time program, whatever, which I think any of our programs are going to interrupt your pre-existing patterns 100%. Right. And, you know, if it's worth it, if it's not. So that's a little bit about the challenges. But you also had some really cool peaks. Yeah, Tell without, us about with, some favorite look, classes. Without, or... without the struggles, there's no growth, right? So well, that exactly. was all. Yeah. I mean, that was all worth it. Um, so much so for the fact that I was exposed to so much while I was here, right? So the highlight, I think, is was the Global Access Program. That's the capstone to the FEMBA program, where we do field research on whether a foreign company should enter into the U.S. market with a good or service. Um, our company, ProSolis, uh, Team ProSolis, go for it. It was a Brazilian agritech company. Um, so we got to know the guys from Brazil. Uh, some of our team went to Brazil. Some of our team went to Des Moines, Iowa. Um, you were on that trip. We, I was right? on that trip, yeah. So we went to... Uh, and you had maybe a city slicker type of classmate? Yeah, well, a little bit. You know, so look, I'm from Wisconsin. If you go back far enough in my family tree, there are definitely farmers uh, on one side of my family. I know my way around the field. I'm not worried about getting dirty, but we did have a few folks who were raised on the East Coast who that was probably the first time they'd ever gotten their boots dirty. So look at what I've expected to be kind of knee deep in mud and, you know, what have you. In the middle, in the middle of your of MBA? Iowa and my MBA. In the middle of your UCLA? Yeah, right. I mean, MBA. no, that's no, not at all. So, but the camaraderie that we built there, I mean, one of my teammates is my best friend from the program. He's my 
my daughter, who was born after the program, he's her godfather. Aww. So I mean, your femme classmate, your femme classmate, classmate, Joe yeah. Wills, go for it. Um, the, the that experience is off the charts phenomenal, and I don't think you get that in many other schools. Um, I know you don't get the other three courses that I'm going to talk about as being really peaks of, of my experience here. Uh, we can start with uh, Sanjay Sood and uh, Harry Sloan taught a course called uh, Entertainment Business Models. I couldn't, if you'd have asked me what an entertainment business model was before I stepped on campus here, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I had a good idea about how you, you know, you make a picture, you fundraise, you sell it, you know, all these other things. I wouldn't have told you what a waterfall diagram looks like, but because of Sanjay and Harry, I know how to do that now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I know how to do it well, but we had 12 weeks of a course wherein we heard from the titans of mm -hmm. Hollywood, right? I'm not going to name names right now because we had to sign NDAs. But that, you had to sign NDAs I mean, in an MBA class. We did, and that's not the only one. So I, actually, all three of these courses I'm going to talk about, you know, the 298s, you'll learn that lingo later on too, but uh, entertainment business models. Um, you, you referenced before, Professor Jeff Morad had the business of sports. Hmm. Really interesting time there, right? The, the Pac-12 networks were just starting up. So we had the mm -hmm. Pac-12 commissioner come in and talk. We had um, the, the Capstone project there was a project for Liverpool FC. Wow. So the Fenway group was here and we got to give a presentation to them about what we would do. Uh, they nice. love, they love, they love my portion of the presentation so much. They, they called me the sham wow guy. So I guess I was doing a, I guess I was doing an infomercial, but um, my classmates will still give me grief about that. But that was another class where I took with a lot of full-timers. So the network mm -hmm. that expanded from there, that's one of the reasons why I was a peak. I was always told um, growing up and it was, it was referred to many times during the networking sessions we had at Anderson is that, Never had to know the person who knew, every, or you didn't have to be the person who knew everybody, but you had to know the person who knew everybody. So nice. I always try to be that guy because given my life constraints, I was never going to be the person who knew everybody. Or no, be, you're married. You have a young family starting right. up, right? You're and you want to get value people. out of this, right? Exactly. So, you know, I, I was maybe broader across the swath and, and less deep. And mm -hmm. that's maybe a regret I had, but the, the coursework um, to go from business and sports to Dean Olean's class, mm -hmm. uh, Dean Olean with Judy, she, hi Judy, um, Peter Goober, um, and she taught a course called, uh, what, did we, what did we write it down? It's a critical milestones in preparing. in preparing for a lifetime in leadership. Okay, here we go. So, and tell people who Peter Goober is if yeah, they so, don't know. So Peter Goober, uh, he, at one point in his career, he was the chairman of Columbia Pictures. Um, right now he's a, a co-owner of the Golden State Warriors and LAFC among numerous other sports and entertainment uh, ventures. Mm -hmm. He's a, he's, if, if not one of the most powerful people in sports and entertainment, he's right up there. Mm -hmm. um, and he always, he had a great phrase about connecting artists to audiences. And hmm. that was kind of his why. And through that coursework, you could really see what that meant, right? So again, another course we had to sign a lot of NDAs, but we had CEOs of, you know, Fortune 10 companies. And we had titans of industry, but we had, Judy and we had Peter and their dynamic was great. I mean, mm. they had a really great chemistry. They all, they both had really great insights into what it takes to be a leader. Um, you and I were talking about that before we started filming today. Um, I think another interesting aspect about that course is I think my, myself and Evan Kinney were the only two Fembas in the class. It was like the late afternoon time. Yeah, slot. it was like, mm -hmm. it was like 145 or something like oh, that. Oh, even, okay, you know, it, was, okay. it was, it was, and it was, it was like, yeah. um, you know, it was a, it was a three hour class, but it was like one o'clock or two o'clock on a Monday. Mm -hmm. It's like, who can really do that? Right. So right. fortunately, but you had some fortunately I had flexibility yeah. in my schedule. So I would take it. I finished 
because I was working market hours at the time, raising assets for investment portfolios. You got up early. I was up with the market and the market closed at one and lo and behold, I would end my day after lunch and roll over here. Nice. Um, we'd sit in the front row, Evan and I. And I think if you're familiar with the Muppet show, Statler and Waldorf are the two old guys up in the balcony who are, <laughs> yeah, they're critiquing everything. They're asking the rudest questions. They're just, they cause every performer to get kind of like a little bit of stage fright as to what's going to happen next. And I think, Rightfully so, Judy was always looking at us like, what are these guys going to say now, right? So, nice. So, I mean, Evan and I are still very good friends, and I think we really bonded over the fact that, you know, we were just trying to figure things out. Mm. I think the interesting part about FEMBA versus full-time, and this is going to be like the FEMBA, pro-FEMBA stuff, is that we kind of knew where we wanted to be and where we were going, and we weren't trying to audition as much, right? Maybe this, okay. is, maybe this is a good or a bad thing, I don't know, but... But certainly in that class, you saw a lot of people who were trying to show how smart they were as opposed to actually like dig deep and figure out like what was going on behind mm. the scenes, right? Like that that lesson today, like we're we really learning that lesson or we're we just showing off that we asked a really smart question. Yeah. There's always a little bit of a tug and pull there. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I would have not traded that course for any other course I took here. Mm. Gap and gap in that course. I still have out of all the materials that I kept from mm -hmm. Anderson, um, that one is still in a, a binder that sits on my desk. Because I reference it a they lot. Still reference. Yeah. Wow. A lot of different a lot of different stories in there. Um how to how to react when your company gets hacked by, you know, foreign foreign entities, right? You know, yeah. What happens when you have a product that fails? What happens when you have a, a marketing experience that goes bad? Like all these react almost it was kind of a crash course in how to handle everything that's gonna get thrown at you. So it was really nice that that was kind of my last capstone besides gap. Mm -hmm. because Gap kind of gave me a way to think about the world and not be afraid to go actually execute on it. But the other one gave me kind of a how-to guide to operate within that framework. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, we're, we're trying to, you know, people are trying to figure out gender equity. Sure. You know, the world needs more female CEOs. You know, we, we had a female CEO for almost 13 years, Dean Judy Olian. And, you know, she left this to go be the president of Quinnipiac University. Right. The Quinnipiac poll that we're all going to pay attention to this exactly. year. Exactly, it's going to get pretty you know, important. So yeah. that she, I, I'm a big fan of of Dean Olean. I thought her lessons in leadership were. I just, I, what, just a quick shout yeah. out to her. You know, she, she has a she has a module that she does about leadership, specifically for women, but it sure. applies to everybody. And and what I loved about her was kind of this tough love message because she said, you know, I think work life family family balance is somewhat of a myth. She probably didn't say somewhat. She said, I think it's totally a myth. Sure. There's work life family trade offs. And one of the things I love about FEMBA is I feel like it's a great preparation to be an executive. Sure. Like you're, if you if you keep your life and go through FEMBA, you really have to be CEO of your life. And you have to start to make those do or delegate decisions across the board because sure. your time becomes ridiculously constrained. Yeah. And that's what every executive out there is wrestling with forever. And I just I thought, you know, because when Judy said that the first time, I thought, well, that's not a very sunshine and unicorn kind of message, but I'd rather have somebody tell me, look, life is difficult and you came to grad school so that we could get you ready for those moments also. And hopefully you'll have lots of sunshine and unicorns, but you know, life careers have lefts and rights and ups and downs. And I just always felt like her, um, her North star was very, you know, she said, I, I don't have children myself. You know, I, I relate to my MBA students, like this is my legacy. And I think she really was, her eye was on does this education get you where you want to go? Yeah, and I love that. And that's and that's still carried that's still carried on today by you and everyone else here too. So I, I think it 
I think from a standpoint of, you know, what did I get out of the experience, right? You're talking about like, well, yeah, let's talk about, talk yeah, about peace and valleys, right? I mean, not to steer the conversation, but it goes into that, right? You mentioned something, but you just said about how, you know, there are going to be tough moments, yeah, right? And what you get out of the experience is a safe place to screw up a little bit, right? I mean, hmm. not that you're going to screw up, but this is, if you're going to screw up, it's better to screw up in a classroom than it is in front of your boss or in front of a big client, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's something I think is important. It gives you a little bit of repetition uh, in, in performing, right? That's one thing. Uh, the framework for thinking, right? That's that's critical. Right? Mm -hmm. You're going to face all these different obstacles in your life and how are you going to get there? Like what what when you make a decision, right? Is it a decision where whether it's, am I going to UCLA? Am I going to UCLA Anderson? Am I going to FEMBA? Am I going to EMBA? Am I going to you know, full-time, like those are all decisions that you have to make based on where you stand in your life, right? Mm -hmm. It's a much easier decision to make after the fact, right? So the money, morning, yeah, the money, money, the money, money quarterback and comes in and play for sure. But you certainly can look at it like, okay, well, where am I going to go with my career? Right. right. So it can, it can give you the ability to zoom out and also zoom back in and to say, okay, well, here's what's important to me now. Here's what's going to be important to me and, and map out a, a plan to execute within that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, the network was really valuable too. I mean, I wouldn't be sitting where I am without the network, right? Mm -hmm. So um, after school, actually late, late in school, before we graduated, I switched jobs. I went from Calamos, which is a family-run shop, a little boutique firm in Chicago, you know, at the time, 30 billion under management. So it wasn't uh, a small player by any means, and, mm -hmm. you know, but, it, but it wasn't, you know, one of the behemoths, right? You know. Larry Fink from BlackRock is always giving talks here. Um, that firm, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, the, the, the firms that people think about when they think about Wall Street. Uh, I was able to get a job with Morgan Stanley, and I think primarily because my MBA was coming from UCLA Anderson. Mm -hmm. So that finance reputation it, that it really drew did. you here the fan, exactly. paid itself forward. Tying tying all these things back to it, right? So I think there's some prestige factor certainly at play, but it's also the fact that you know we're we go up and down the classrooms here and we have great faculty, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether you're trying to learn how to value an equity with fresh assessment or whether you have Subra and he's telling you how behavioral economics work. Um, those are still two classes that I rely on really heavily on what I do. But because of, if you go back to like where, where I am now, the industry has shifted, right? So I've always been somebody who's trying to observe where, how things are behaving and try to get ahead of trends and get ahead of that. And I think it's probably a, gab from my dad's experiences mm -hmm. where consolidation happens and then what what you left there holding the bag is you know, yeah, it's no fun for lack of a better term right it's no fun to be early 50s with a family and then the rug gets pulled right out so you. so by happenstance um casey quirk is a division of deloitte mm -hmm. they have a monopoly on consulting to financial services companies and I took the job with Morgan Stanley and I'm like, okay, I'm really excited about this. This is going to be great. I mean, this is, you know, arguably one of the top two financial firms in the world. Um, but is my job, is this portion of the company going to be there for a long time, right? Like, is mm -hmm. my job going to be there for a long time? Casey Quirk puts out a study, says, okay, well, this, is how, this is how these sales organizations are, within asset managers are going to be structured. Okay. I'm like, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Turns out to be true. Right. So we had some we had some consolidation, a little bit of reorganization. Some of the people I, I came on board with were no longer there within you know six months, a year of me joining. Yeah. So I go anyone out there ever yeah, had that happen? Right, right. So, know, this so, is life in the world. we Right. Live so again, so I'm like, OK, well, what's this mean for me? Right. So I look up, I go on LinkedIn, I go Casey Quirk. 
I got to know somebody that's at Casey Park. I mean, Deloitte recruits you. Everybody recruits you, right? I got to know somebody. Okay. I didn't know the person directly, and I still couldn't name them today, to be honest with you. I probably should you know, write a big thank you to them. But it was an email exchange with uh, an Anderson grad from several years prior. And I said, hey, this is what I've seen. This is what I think is going to happen. Am I right? Mm-hmm. And kind of the trend in that industry was that the salespeople were going to become more junior. The pay was going to be reduced. Um, there was going to be much more of a, a desk-oriented job as opposed to a, a client-facing job. So okay. I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? It means I got to do something because if my job's not going to be around for 10 years, where does that leave me with? Now, two kids. Two kids, um, yeah. yeah. You know, Avery, our daughter, was born after the program. I looked at it and said, okay, well, I have field study experience through GAP. So why not do some field study? So at the time, my clients were the biggest wealth managers in Southern California. Mm-hmm. So who better to kind of figure out what wealth management is going to look like in 10 years than, than that? Okay. So little did they know, I spent the better part of a year and a half interviewing them about how wealth management should look, kind of comparing and contrasting to what, I, what my, my core values were and what I thought would be the right way to do things. And more and more... I got disenchanted with the current way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And I was pushed to kind of make a bet on myself and say, hey, you know, I should start my own company. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Entrepreneur, entrepreneurship, you know, you get price yep. center, everybody, we're boom, boom, we're, we're rocking and rolling. You hear about that around here. Yeah. Right. So I end up, you know, long story short, spent a year and a half figuring things out, kind of got a rough framework for what I would do with a business plan. Asked a friend of mine whose family runs a business management firm for a lot of Hollywood folks to go to a Dodgers game and just talk, right? Like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I want to do. What's missing for from here to where you can introduce your clients to me and say, hey, this, this makes sense for them. With confidence. Well, yeah, with confidence, right? Yeah. Not just as a favor to me because you know me, but right. it's like, hey, this is, this is a wealth management firm that is reputable and is doing the right things. And he said, well, you don't need to go build it yourself. You, you can go down the street to Century City and talk to my friends who are already two or three years ahead of you. Like, okay. okay, sure. And like, you know, a little disenchanted, you know, a little disenchanted a little bit, like, okay, what does that mean? Um, but lo and behold, went and talked with the folks at Advice Period, and there was a really great natural fit as to what we saw, you know, happening in the industry, mm-hmm. what clients needed, and then how we were gonna deliver that to clients. So, you know, again, the framework, the network, all these things kind of cascading into place to get me where I am right now. And I think the way as we were setting up this conversation, you know, one way you phrased it, which I'd love to pull out now is you really feel like this, like all of it helped you come to a a clean, clear sense of you found your why. Yeah, I I really did. Right. So if you if you kind of my why is really to coach people to realize the talents they have and to use those talents to further their successes. Right. I don't believe that I'm ever going to be the one people credit for their success. I think the people that find me are people who are already successful that want either someone to make their life easier. Mm-hmm. Um, they want somebody to make, you know, to be their confidant, to bounce ideas off of them, right? To rely on the experiences that I've built and the education that I have. Um, they want somebody to make it, make them feel okay, right? So what, one of the things I mentioned, Subra and the behavioral economics courses, and we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, a lot of people who graduate from MBA programs, the biggest trepidation they have is personal finance. Mm-hmm. If I handed you them, you know, 10K, they could dissect it no problem. 
they reconstruct it, give me the cash flow statement and tell me whether or not they think it's a good business to invest in. I can analyze other people's assets. See, right? And so one of the things that I've found is that we all have the tools. And if you look at today's environment, more so than ever, there are digital tools to help us. There are you know, our networks that can help us. But in reality, we're still going to be subject to just human behavior, right? Like we're, we're human. So right. we're I think risk averse. Right. Homing in the point that you made is that we are risk averse. The fear of loss is so big that we're unwilling to act because we don't want to blame ourselves for making the wrong right. choice, right? So that's really where I can add value. Whether, mm-hmm. whether it's adding value because I point them in the right direction to say, here's some software tools that you can use, or hey, you know what, you really need me to help, you know, shepherd your you know, start a business mm-hmm. from point A to point B, or hey, you know, to get your wealth that you've created from you to your kids, what have you. But just being there to give people in our cohort, people who are kind of like five years out, like you said, mm-hmm. you know, have their MBAs, have great jobs here in LA or anywhere else in the country. You know, I, I mentioned Goldman earlier. Goldman Sachs came up with an acronym called Henry. I love this. Yeah. And if you're in finance, you know it. If you're not, you don't. But high earner, not rich yet. Henry. Henry. High earner, not rich yet. Yeah, and that's and that's that's us, really. I mean, if you right. look at the statistics on who graduates from schools like this, um, who graduate from this school in particular, we're all doing quite well. Mm-hmm. We might or we might or might not have the confidence to believe that. Um, what I've found to be really helpful for people is to get a plan to mm-hmm. kind of. Say, okay, here's here's our toolkit. Here's our personal balance sheet, mm-hmm. right? Instead of a 10K, let's look at what, what assets we have, what liabilities we have, right? Like, don't be afraid that we have student loan debt. Don't be afraid of the things that we can't control, of the choices that we've made previous. But can we put this all together and say, here are the cash flows we need to live our lives, mm-hmm. right? No different than we're looking at a company's cash flows. What do we have to get there? And how do we, how do we reach that point? Mm-hmm. Is it offering equity. And I would say like, if you're offering equity, that's like, do you get a better job? Right. Do you increase, you know, how do you increase your income? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the, that's the cheapest way to do it. There's a little bit of dilution, right? You're talking about fixed income. Are you going to take on more debt? Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe not the best choice, but who knows? Those are some things that MBAs can comprehend. And if you talk to them that way, I think they get it. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that's really important for MBAs to understand is that, and we can reference that FedEx commercial that you mentioned before. Um, we can't outsmart ourselves and say, look, just because we've been trained a certain way doesn't make us human. Mm-hmm. Like if you accept the fact that you're a human being, you're going to have all sorts of biases. And that was a really interesting component of this program too, is that the focus on EQ mm-hmm. and the focus on some of these biases and some of the courses that we have to really explore what people do. Like, I mean, for the most part, you know, confirmation bias is a huge problem for MBAs mm-hmm. because we've done, we've done well, we've gotten ourselves to this, so maybe we're, our choices are infallible. Well, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> you know, you look at the last 10 years in the markets, the markets have gone nothing but up. So what happens there? You get recency bias, right? So mm-hmm. you think everything that we do is going to be the same way. Learning to deal with our biases, learning to boil it back down to simple things, and then projecting forward is really the biggest value that I can make for people. Mm-hmm. And it, it gives me the best joy. And it goes back to my mom being a kindergarten teacher and seeing how 30 years later, kids in her class come back to her and say, oh, thank you. You know, I learned to read in your class and I love to read and I became a writer. But what, you know, you name it, like all these stories. My why is to get people that point. So when mm-hmm. you know, 20 years down the road and their wealth has been passed on to their future generations, they're like, thank you, right? That, that's, 
that's the reward in itself, right? Like everybody gets into finance, everybody gets into these things because they want to be highly paid and successful. Who doesn't? Well, that's a driver too. Um, but for me, it's being able to help people feel better about the decisions they make. Nice. Which led me to advice period. We're, you know, we're, we're a group of advisors who think planning should take precedence. Mm-hmm. We're a group of advisors who think clients and clients' wealth should take precedence. You know, the financial services industry, the wealth management industry in general, typically looks at a client's assets in the way that, hey, this is the money. We're going to manage the money you make, not necessarily the wealth you created. Mm-hmm. And the way that I the way that I look at that is, hey, we're going to charge you a fee on the assets you have in the markets with us. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's not the best way to do things, right? You should, you should be paying a fee for advice and you should be paying a fee for the things that you're getting out of that relationship. Some of it could be investment management. Mm-hmm. Some of it could be estate planning. Some of it could be financial planning. Some of it could just be technology that brings it all into one place so that you as the MBA can make better decisions because all of your information about your investments, your asset allocation, all that's in one easily mm-hmm. findable place. So. Well, I love this, this metaphor I've used just the last couple of years about you know, be CEO of your own life. And you know, your, your husband, wife, you know, domestic partner, whatever your reality is, the extended wealth from the generation in front of you, you know, what, what's my legacy to the generation behind me? Uh, you know, do I have a philanthropic goal? I, I think that you know, I have a similar story to Brent and my mom's a school teacher. And my father was a minister. You know, we, I did not come from an affluent family. I went to get my MBA. I'm, okay, fix me. Yeah. <laughs> Teach me how to read Section C of the newspaper because, yeah, right. you know, sports right. I understood. Politics was fun. But the you know, the gobbledygook in the business yeah. section. And yeah, now I've, I've married into a wife whose family is very entrepreneurial. My wife's had her own company for a decade. I've actually become an advisor to her. Like I never thought when I got my MBA that an outcome of me investing in my own growth and development would be that I would have something to offer someone else. So it's not my why per se. It was more specific, but it's great to have, you know, when you're a husband, you want to add value somewhere. Right. Um, so I, I, and I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent. Let me no, I, li- I like it. The, the, the skill sets that we're developing through our MBA and through our careers are relevant to every other piece of our life. Yeah. It's just a matter of how you look at it. And, and yeah, I think what I heard you when you, when you talked about not just giving people a, let me manage the money you make, but rather let me look at the wealth portfolio that is in the background of your whole life. And then your, your word plan, you know, where does, where does that go from here? Sure. And how do I uniquely look with you at where that could be? And I, I think if, if people are listening to this who are thinking about an MBA, yeah, it's a six figure investment. Ah, you know, can I just get that on the internet? Like, Oh, can I just LinkedIn people? Sure. There are other ways to build a life, but this is a, our new dean, Tony Bernardo, likes to say within one square mile. Like when you think about the internet was started within one square mile of here. The very first internet pulse was October right. of 1969. From us to Stanford, we were node number one. Stanford was node number two. Like like UCLA has been in business for 100 years. Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball. Like UCLA is first African-American mayor of Los Angeles is Tom Bradley. We've been adding to society, to the arts, to science for 100 years. We're going to keep doing that for 100 years. So surround yourself with excellence. Give yourself the chance to challenge yourself, you know, with classmates like Brent, you know, I mean, like, but for real, right? right? Like, no, but I mean, you can go up and down the chain. You know, we have from 2015, we have classmates who are doing all sorts of interesting things. Mm -hmm. No, you're in this five-year reunion now. Yeah, we do have the reunion coming up. So it'll be here in May. It'll be interesting to see, right? We have lots of people who got into real estate. They've done quite well in commercial real estate. We've got people who are, you know, working with the genome and trying to cure rare diseases, right? We've got people who are doing startups, right? Some of the, some of the people are doing startups in 
my industry and I find it fantastic. If you haven't looked up Cassinia and Unest, you should do it because she's doing great things for college savings plans, going back to like what is available to you from a technological perspective. You're surrounding yourself with really interesting people here. Not that not that you wouldn't be elsewhere, but just the the location here draws people who are kind of multi-talented, who are curious about, you know, what the school has to offer, what LA has to offer. And they're also just kind of fun, laid back, you know, and a good hang, I suppose, if that makes sense, right? Like that's that's what I found out of, out of my experiences. Oh, I love it. Ksenia, yeah, I remember I could always like, how do I pronounce her name? Yeah. I, I, she was a wonderful person in your class. Okay, well, we're coming to the end of our time with Brent. Um, the last question I've been inter- ending these interviews with is, is a favorite for me because now I get to steal something. Hopefully you got some perspective on, you know, the financing of an MBA. You know, the equity is I can grow my own ability to earn. Debt is, yeah, there are sources out there. You didn't even talk about a rich uncle, right? You can also go get people, look at yourself like a startup. You know, who, who should support me? Sure. You know, a lot of people that I've, I've come to learn, a lot of people in California are in multi-generational family environments and they know they are, they don't want to run the family business now and they know they're going to inherit it someday. And so in short term, for the next 15 years, I want to do what I want to do, but I know at some point I'm going to receive those assets and I want to prepare myself to be able to be the steward within my family, the big brother in your case. Um, so, you know, that's... No, I, look, there's, I'm happy, you know, this, this isn't necessarily the time for it, but I'm happy to give people my two cents on any number of things. Yeah. The, whether it's the MBA, whether it's getting a financial plan, whether it's getting any of these things together, like just consider me a resource. I'm in the network. That's yeah. the point. Pick yeah. up the phone, send an email, what have you. Yeah. So my last question is uh, is a question that this is where I uniquely steal good value. So tell me, because I love to hear what high performance, high aspiration, high output human beings do to just manage the day to day of it all. So tell us what are some productivity hacks that are that are working for you now? What are some things yeah. that, you know, they can be from your MBA. They can just be from life. No, I mean, productivity, like, it, you know, it's not rocket science, right? That was the note you sent to me about this interview is it's not rocket science, but a lot of the productivity hacks aren't rocket science. I actually read an article. It was a tweet to something by Inc. Magazine that said there's five things in your life that you can have or that you experience at any given time, but only three of them can take priority, mm. right? And we talked about a lot of them during this interview, right? So it's it's work, it's family, it's um, sleep, <laughs> it's, it's um, fitness, and it's friends. Mm. Pretty simple stuff, right? But what I found in the article that alludes to this, you only have three of those things going for you at any one time. So there's some opportunity costs. Work, there. family, sleep, fitness, friends. Yeah. So I'm, pick three. Pick three, right? And so one of the things that I'm, because of being the parent to a six and a four year old, um, I will not give up on sleep. So okay. the hack, productivity hack number one is go to bed early. Nice. And that's like a, very fancy, very, yeah, very shiny. Well, man, that, that one is the hardest one to do. Though, because we all have smartphones in our pockets and we all right. have streaming services on our televisions. But if you can get yourself to a point where you're sleeping and not sacrificing the eight to nine hours, you'll be a heck of a lot better off for it, right? Mm-hmm. It's a tough thing to do, especially if you're in kind of startup phase or your parents or what have you. But I've, I've tried to not give up on that one. The others that I really focus on are fitness. Like I try to sweat like a really good sweat hour long, four times a week, if not four more. times. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, find, find something that you like to do, mm-hmm. right? Whether if you like to run by yourself, go run by yourself. If you like to go to a spinning class like I do, go to spinning classes, but do something where you're 
you're dissipating your stress mm -hmm. through physical activity. Let the machinery. Yeah. Do and so, something. and so look at, we had, we said there's five, you can only pick three. You can't kind of pair together sleep with anything else, but fitness, you certainly can, right? That's mm -hmm. where the, the productivity hacks become. How do you pair the others together? Mm -hmm. Right. So fitness mm -hmm. and friends certainly can do that. Right. Yeah. The, the health, health and fitness or the, excuse me, yeah, health and fitness kind of go together. The, where do I go? The work, work and friends can be the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like find people you like to work with. Nice. Find, like when you go into an interview, really pay attention to culture. Yeah. Are you going to like being there? Are right. you going to spend a lot of time there? Are you going to like the people you're with? Like, mm -hmm. So how can you marry those concepts together? So the, the, I focus a lot on the sleep and the fitness because those are things I can really, really control, mm -hmm. right? The work stuff, work's going to have peaks and valleys, just like the MBA program has peaks and valleys. Friendships are as hard or as easy as you want to maintain them, right? It's how right. much effort you're going to put in. So yes, there's going to be peaks and valleys there too. But look, I like, I try to eat very helpful whole foods, not to do it. You know, the whole eat your vegetables kind of stuff. But look, do what's right for you. Eat, eat what makes you feel good and it's gonna give you longevity. Mm -hmm. Have to have the energy to do it, right? I've cut back on caffeine, believe it or not. Like some people will say productivity hack is a caffeine. <laughs> I find myself that if I reduce the amount of caffeine and like say by ten o'clock I'm not gonna have any more caffeine. Okay. It leads to better sleep. Like it gives me the jolt I still need to get functioning in the morning, but right. I'm, I still have better night's sleep. So how are you when you're thinking about productivity hacks, think about a few things. Can you marry mm -hmm. aspects of your life together so that you're enjoying it? Nice. I think I, think I saw the schedule for some upcoming folks on um, this podcast. And I think Ashley Merrill is going to be on. Yeah. Her yeah, husband spoke to one of our classes in Chemba and he gave the same type of advice about mixing friends and work and all these things. And I, remember, nice. I, remember, I don't remember which class it was, but I remember him speaking to it. Uh, and I took that to heart. So yeah, that was a pretty good piece of advice that I stole. Um, other than that, I mean, take some time off. Mm -hmm. Like, don't forget to recharge. I mean, recharge could be anything. It could be about spending time doing something that recharges you. It could be traveling the world, right? Mm -hmm. It could be taking a walk around the block. But make time to kind of be in your own space, right? And what do you What do you do? What do you, What are some things that you? Oh, wisdom on, uh, yeah, well, wisdom. I don't know. Um, I started getting up early in 2016 yeah. and I, I i set my alarm for five i have 20 minutes of quiet time kind of meditation prayer time sure. and then 20 minutes to make the coffee and you know so i start about 5 40 and because my my kids are well now they're 12 and 7 but whatever they yeah. were three four years ago about the same where yours are but i just i couldn't find any solitude and and i just i, I said i'm going to be an artist from 5 30 to 6 30 every morning and it was so cool because to me writing and creativity mm -hmm. but I didn't have the right outlet for it in my day job because university administration, there's so much. It's just ping, ping. It's right. people all day long. And it's awesome. You're in the flow of all of these lives, yeah. but it's, it's, you know, your schedule's not your own. And it, it left me with this experience of now I can walk into my day having checked the box that I paid homage to the muse. Sure. And then now, okay, you know, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. Now I'm going to go pay my dues at UCLA. I'm going to go, you know, I got this seven day a week job because we teach seven days a week. Um, I'm going to go balance all that. And then when I get home, you know, I'm blessed with getting to live in California close to where I work. I, I have dinner with my children most nights, not every night, but a lot. I'm a visible father and that's incredibly fulfilling for me. And I feel like investing in my education gave me the stature to be able to call the ball on sure. how my family work trade-offs are going to go. And 
you know, so it's be here now. I'm going to be an artist for an hour. I'm going to go be a UCLA person for nine or 10 hours. I'm going to go be a dad for two hours. And then at nine o'clock, I've got an alarm that goes on my watch. It says it's nine o'clock. And so at nine o'clock, no more projects. You're tired. You're exhausted. No big thoughts. Don't evaluate yourself. It was a day well lived. Tomorrow will be a new day. But yeah, and then, you know, drift off to bed somewhere between 10 and 1030 and then five o'clock, get up, repeat. And it works. And it, I was not an early riser before 2016. I was a, yeah, I get up 637 ish. Oh, sleep till 730 and hurry up to work, slamming coffee on the way, no breakfast. And it's, I don't know. I, I, you know, we're not machines. I'm not a robot. Got to have some ebbs and flows. How how do you feel now today versus back then? Do you feel a big? Well, I wrote my second, I wrote my second book, you know, which I'm going to give you as a gift for being here today. And that was a huge fulfillment of like a kind of a, entrepreneurial itch that I then got to scratch. And I felt again, like it's, it, it's like, it's like, I, I want to, my next book is going to be addicted to work. Cause I think there's an element of, especially, I don't know, as a parent, my life, my worldview changed when children came along. I see things very differently as a father than I saw before I was a father. And you're, you're providing for your family. Therefore you must go to work, but it's that diminishing returns right. thing between hour eight, nine, 10, and 11, then there's an opportunity cost. You know, do I live to work or work to live and all that? So I feel like, I, I don't know. I want, I want to get to the end of this life and feel like, hey, I, I gave it my best shot. I was, right. I was gifted with parents who love each other, a good education. I got to live in America. I got a lot of great, great things. Right. So pay it forward kind of deal. So, uh, you know, it's given me a sense of balance that I don't think I had before. So. Thank you for asking. Oh, I learned something about myself with no, Prince. Uh, good question. It's so. uh, the the point you bring up about the, about your kids and how you view the world differently is certainly true. Um, the time my my biggest thought is if we if if I help people plan their financial lives appropriately, they're going to get more time to do exactly what you're talking about. Right? They're not going to yeah. be not going to be as afraid of the opportunity cost of not working the tenth or eleventh hour. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, you know what, we're good here. Mm-hmm. We can we can spend that time with our family. We can take that vacation. We can do the things that we need to do to live a more fulfilling life, right? To take that CEO role, like you've you know discussed many times, not only today but other times I've heard you speak too. So it, look, it, it's um it's been an interesting ride to this point. I'm pretty excited to see where it's going to go from here. Yeah, um, but I think that certainly the UCLA story is going to be one that's you know a constant as I go. So. Oh, very great. Well. Um, Dawn is your wife's name. Dawn is my wife. My You're a saint. We've yeah. heard you were a saint. Dawn, thank you for loaning uh, Brent to us for three years. I hope uh, that you reap the rewards of your investment in him. <laughs> my, my, I, this is this is about me, not you. No, it's fine. Behind every successful man, there is a surprise mother-in-law. I love that. <laughs> that's, that's for my father-in-law. Yeah. He likes to say that, but I got the best father-in-law in the world. Thank you, Brad. Marissa is awesome. Um, so this has been Brent Presentine, uh, UCLA Anderson class of 2015. He's on LinkedIn. He's a resource for you. If you get in our alumni network, I hope you get to meet him. Uh, maybe we'll have you come speak at Palooza. I don't know. We should do something. Yeah, Thank I'm, you happy, for- I'm happy to speak to anybody. Like if, you, if, you're, if you're worried about how much college costs, don't be. We can figure it out. If you're worried about how much MBA is going to cost, don't be. We can figure it out. Yeah. 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 You learn how to make plans. You be responsible here. We're, we're good at giving you that. So thank you for your time. Thank you all for listening. And um, tune in again in the future. We'll have another great interview. Ashley Merrill will be coming. All right. All right. Thank you all. Thanks,